Chapter 10, Part 1 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer. Translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 10, Part 1 The Markan Hypothesis. Bibliography Christian Hermann Weisse. A Critical and Philosophical Study of the Gospel History. Two Volumes. Leipzig, Breitkopf, and Hartel. 1838. Volume 1, 614 pages. Volume 2, 543 pages. Christian Gottlob Wilke. The Earliest Evangelist. 1838. Dresden and Leipzig. 694 pages. Christian Hermann Weisse. The Present Position of the Problem of the Gospels. Leipzig, 1856. The Gospel History of Weisse was written, like Strauss's Life of Jesus, by a philosopher who had been driven out of philosophy and forced back upon theology. Weisse was born in 1801 at Leipzig and became Professor Extraordinary of Philosophy in the university there in 1828. In 1837, finding his advance to the ordinary professorship barred by the Herbartians, he withdrew from academic teaching and gave himself to the preparation of this work, the plan of which he had in mind for some time. Having brought it to a satisfactory completion, he began again in 1841 as a privet docent in philosophy, and became ordinary professor in 1845. From 1848 onwards, he lectured in theology also. His work on philosophical dogmatics, or the philosophy of Christianity, is well known. He died in 1866 of cholera. Lotzi and Lipsius were both much influenced by him. Weisse admired Strauss, and hailed his life of Jesus as a forward step towards the reconciliation of religion and philosophy. He expresses his gratitude to him for clearing the ground of the primeval forest of theology, thus rendering it possible for him, that is, Weisse, to develop his views without wasting time upon polemics. Quote, Since most of the views which have hitherto prevailed may be regarded as having received the coup de grace from Strauss, he is at one with Strauss also in his general view of the relations of philosophy and religion, holding that it is only if philosophy, by following its true path, attains independently to the conviction of the truth of Christianity, that its alliance with theology and religion can be welcomed as advantageous. Footnote. At the end of his preface, he makes the striking remark, quote, I confess, I cannot conceive of any possible way by which Christianity can take on a form which will make it once more the truth for our time without having recourse to the aid of philosophy. And I rejoice to believe that this opinion is shared by many of the ablest and most respected of present-day theologians. Close quote. End footnote. His work, therefore, like that of Strauss, leads up finally to a philosophical exposition in which he shows how, for us, the Jesus of history becomes the Christ of faith. Weisse is the direct continuer of Strauss. Standing outside the limitations of the Hegelian formulae, he begins at the point where Strauss leaves off. His aim is to discover, if possible, 
some thread of general connection in the narratives of the gospel tradition which if present would represent a historically certain element in the life of jesus and thus serve as a better standard by which to determine the extent of myth that can possibly be found in the subjective impression upon which strauss relies strauss by way of gratitude called him a dilettante this was most unjust for if anyone deserved to share strauss's place of honour it was certainly weisse the idea that mark's gospel might be the earliest of the four first occurred to weisse during the progress of his work in march eighteen thirty seven when he reviewed tholuck's credibility of the gospel history he was as innocent of this discovery as wilke was at the same period but when once he had observed that the graphic details of mark which had hitherto been regarded as due to an attempt to embellish an epitomizing narrative were too insignificant to have been inserted with this purpose it became clear to him that only one other possibility remained open viz that their absence in matthew and luke was due to omission he illustrates this from the description of the first day of jesus ministry at capernaum he avers quote, the relation of the first evangelist to mark in those portions of the gospel which are common to both is with few exceptions mainly that of an epitomizer the decisive argument for the priority of mark is even more than his graphic detail the composition and arrangement of the whole quote, it is true the gospel of mark shows very distinct traces of having arisen out of spoken discourses which themselves were by no means ordered and connected but disconnected and fragmentary being he means in its original form based on notes of the incidents related by peter quote, it is not the work of an eyewitness nor even of one who had had an opportunity of questioning eyewitnesses thoroughly and carefully nor even of deriving assistance from inquirers who on their part had made a connected study of the subject with a view to filling up the gaps and placing each individual part in its right position and so articulating the whole into an organic unity which should be neither merely inward nor on the other hand merely external nevertheless the evangelist was guided in his work by a just recollection of the general course of the life of jesus weisse explains quote, it is precisely in mark that a closer study unmistakably reveals that the incidental remarks far from shutting off and separating the different narratives tend rather to unite them with each other and so give the impression not of a series of anecdotes fortuitously thrown together but of a connected history by means of these remarks and by many other connecting links which he works into the narration of the individual stories mark has succeeded in conveying a vivid impression of the stir which jesus made in galilee and from galilee to jerusalem of the gradual gathering of the multitudes to him of the growing intensity of loyalty in the inner circle of his disciples and as the counterpart of all this of the growing enmity of the pharisees and scribes an impression which mere isolated narratives strung together without any living connection would not have sufficed to produce a connection of this kind is less clearly present in the other synoptists and is wholly lacking in john the fourth gospel by itself would give us a completely false conception of the relation of jesus to the people 
From the content of its narratives, the reader would form the impression that the attitude of the people towards Jesus was hostile from the very first, and that it was only in isolated occasions for a brief moment that Jesus, by his miraculous acts, inspired the people with astonishment rather than admiration that surrounded by a little company of disciples he contrived for a time to defy the enmity of the multitude and that having repeatedly provoked it by intemperate invective he finally succumbed to it the simplicity of the plan of mark is in weiss's opinion a stronger argument for his priority than the most elaborate demonstration one only needs to compare it with the perverse design of Luke, who makes Jesus undertake a journey through Samaria. Weiss asks, quote, How, in the case of a writer who does things of this kind, can it be possible at this time of day to speak seriously of historical exactitude in the use of his sources? Close quote. To come down to detail, Weiss's argument for the priority of Mark rests mainly on the following propositions. 1. In the first and third Gospels, traces of a common plan are found only in those parts which they have in common with Mark, not in those which are common to them, but not to Mark also. 2. In those parts which the three Gospels have in common, the agreement of the other two is mediated through Mark. 3. In those sections which the first and third Gospels have, but Mark has not, the agreement consists in the language and incidents, not in the order. Their common source, therefore, the Logia of Matthew, did not contain any type of tradition which gave an order of narration different from that of Mark. 4. The divergences of wording between the two other synoptists is in general greater in the parts where both have drawn on the Logia document than where Mark is their source. 5. The first evangelist reproduces this Logia document more faithfully than Luke does, but his gospel seems to have been of later origin. This historical argument for the priority of Mark was confirmed in the year in which it appeared by Vilca's work, The Earliest Gospel, which treated the problem more from the literary side and, to take an illustration from astronomy, supplied the mathematical confirmation of the hypothesis. In regard to the Gospel of John, Weisse fully shared the negative views of Strauss. What is the use, he asks, of keeping on talking about the plan of this Gospel, seeing that no one has yet succeeded in showing what that plan is? And for a very good reason, there is none. One would never guess from the Gospel of John that Jesus, until his departure from Galilee, had experienced almost unbroken success. It is no good trying to explain the want of plan by saying that John wrote with the purpose of supplementing and correcting his predecessors, and that his omissions and additions were determined by this purpose. Such a purpose is betrayed by no single word in the whole gospel. The want of plan lies in the very plan itself. Quote, it is a fixed idea, one may say, with the author of this gospel, who had heard that Jesus had fallen a victim in Jerusalem to the hatred of the Jewish rulers, especially the scribes, that he must represent Jesus as engaged from his first appearance onward in an unceasing struggle with the Jews, whereas we know that the mass of the people, even to the last, in Jerusalem itself, were on the side of Jesus. So much so, indeed, 
that his enemies were only able to get him into their power by means of a secret betrayal. Close quote. In regard to the graphic descriptions in John, of which so much has been made, the case is no better. It is the graphic detail of a writer who desires to work up a vivid picture, not the natural touches of an eyewitness. And there are, moreover, actual inconsistencies, as in the case of the healing at the pool of Bethesda. The circumstantiality is due to the care of the author not to assume an acquaintance, on the part of his readers, with Jewish usages or the topography of Palestine. Quote, a considerable proportion of the details are of such a character as inevitably to suggest that the narrator inserts them because of the trouble which it has cost him to orient himself in regard to the scene of the action and the dramatis personae, his object being to spare his readers a similar difficulty, though he does not always go about it in the way best calculated to effect his purpose. Close quote. The impossibility also that the historic Jesus can have preached the doctrine of the Johannine Christ is as clear to Weisse as to Strauss. Quote, it is not so much a picture of Christ that John sets forth as a conception of Christ. His Christ does not speak in his own person, but of his own person. Close quote. On the other hand, however, the authority of the whole Christian church from the second century to the nineteenth carries too much weight with Visa for him to venture altogether to deny the Johannine origin of the gospel, and he seeks a middle path. He assumes that the didactic portions really, for the most part, go back to John the Apostle. He explains, quote, John, drawn on by the interest of a system of doctrine which had formed itself in his mind, not so much as a direct reflex of the teaching of his master, as on the basis of suggestions offered by that teaching, in combination with a certain creative activity of his own, endeavored to find this system also in the teaching of his master. Accordingly, with this purpose, and originally for himself alone, not with the object of communicating it to others, he made an effort to exhibit, in the light of this system of thought, what his memory still retained of the discourses of the Lord. Quote, the Johannine discourses, therefore, were recalled by a laborious effort of memory on the part of the disciple. When he found that his memory image of his master was threatening to dissolve into a mist wraith, he endeavored to impress a picture more firmly in his recollection, to connect and define its rapidly disappearing features reconstructing it by the aid of a theory evolved by himself or drawn from elsewhere regarding the person and work of the master. For the portrait of Christ in the synoptic gospels, the mind of the disciples who describe him is a neutral medium. For the portrait in John, it is a factor which contributes to the production of the picture. The same portrait is outlined by the apostle in the first epistle which bears his name. These tentative essays, not originally intended for publication, came, after the death of the Apostle, into the hands of his adherents and disciples, and they chose the form of a complete life of Jesus as that in which to give them to the world. They, therefore, added narrative portions, which they distributed here and there among the speeches, often doing some violence to the latter in the process. 
Such was the origin of the fourth gospel. Weisse is not blind to the fact that this hypothesis of a Johannine basis in the gospel is beset with the gravest, one might almost say with insuperable difficulties. Here is a man who was an immediate disciple of the Lord, one who, in the synoptic gospels, in Acts and in the Pauline letters, appears in a character which gives no hint of a coming spiritual metamorphosis, one, moreover, who at a relatively late period, when it might well have been supposed that his development was in all essentials closed, at the time of Paul's visit to Jerusalem, which falls at least fourteen years after Paul's conversion, was chosen, along with James and John, and in contrast with the apostles of the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas, as an apostle of the Jews, Weisse asks, quote, How is it possible to explain and to make it intelligible that a man of these antecedents displays in his thoughts and speech, in fact in his whole mental attitude, a thoroughly Hellenistic stamp? How came he, the beloved disciple, who, according to this very gospel which bears his name, was admitted more intimately than any other into the confidence of Jesus. How came he to clothe his master in this foreign garb of Hellenistic speculation, and to attribute to him this alien manner of speech? But however difficult the explanation may be, whatever extreme of improbability may seem to us to be involved in the assumption of the Johannine authorship of the epistle and of these essential elements of the gospel, it is better to assent to the improbability, to submit to the burden of being forced to explain the inexplicable, than to set ourselves obstinately against the weight of testimony, against the authority of the whole Christian church from the second century to the present day. There could be no better argument against the genuineness of the fourth gospel than just such a defense of its genuineness as this. In this form, the hypothesis may well be destined to lead a harmless and never-ending life. What matters for the historical study of the life of Jesus is simply that the fourth gospel should be ruled out, and that Visa does so thoroughly that it is impossible to imagine its being done more thoroughly. The speeches, in spite of their apostolic authority, are unhistorical and need not be taken into account in describing Jesus' system of thought. As for the unhappy redactor, who, by adding the narrative pictures created in the gospel, all possibility of his reports being accurate is roundly denied, and as if that were not enough, he must put up with being called a bungler into the bargain. Quote, I have, to tell the truth, no very high opinion of the literary art of the editor of the Johannine Gospel Document, close quote, says Weisse in his problem of the gospels of eighteen fifty six which is the best commentary upon his earlier work his treatment of the fourth gospel reminds us of the story that frederick the great once appointed an importunate office seeker to the post of privy councillor for war on condition that he would never presume to offer a syllable of advice the hypothesis which was brought forward about the same time by alexander schweitzer with the intention of saving the genuineness of the Gospel of John, did not make any real contribution to the subject. The reading of the facts which forms his starting point is almost the exact converse of that of Visa, since he regards not the speeches, but
but certain parts of the narrative as Johannine, that which it is possible, in his opinion, to refer to the apostle is an account, not involving any miracles of the ministry of Jesus at Jerusalem, and the discourses which he delivered there. The more or less miraculous events which occur in the course of it, such as that Jesus had seen Nathanael under the fig tree, knew the past life of the Samaritan woman, and healed the sick man at the pool of Bethesda, are of a simple character, and contrast markedly with those which are represented to have occurred in Galilee, where Jesus turned water into wine, and fed a multitude with a few crusts of bread. We must, therefore, suppose that this short, authentic, spiritual Jerusalem gospel has had a Galilean life of Jesus worked into it, and this explains the inconsistencies of the representation and the oscillation between a sensuous and a spiritual point of view. This distinction, however, cannot be made good. Schweitzer was obliged to ascribe the reports of a material resurrection to the Galilean source, whereas these, since they exclude the Galilean appearances of Jesus, must belong to the Jerusalem gospel, and accordingly the whole distinction between a spiritual and material gospel falls to the ground. Thus, this hypothesis at best preserves the nominal authenticity of the fourth gospel, only to deprive it immediately of all value as a historical source. End of chapter 10, part 1